Hi, it's Mark Sisson. Welcome to the Primal Blueprint Podcast. It's time for another show dedicated to the world of keto. Check out ketoreset.com for details about my New York Times bestselling book and send your questions to info at ketoreset.com. Welcome to Keto Questions. I'm your host, Brad Kearns. Thank you for joining me. Thank you for writing these wonderful questions to info at ketoreset.com. And that's the landing page where we have uh, all the books published since the Keto Reset Diet, two other cookbooks uh, coming soon. Fabulous new book that Mark Sisson and I just turned in titled Keto Longevity, release date December 31st, 2019. And this book is somewhat of a sequel to the New York Times bestselling Keto Reset Diet in that we are helping you leverage the tool of metabolic flexibility that you developed through low-carb, low-insulin-producing, ketogenic eating patterns. So that starting point of being metabolically flexible and then pursuing a comprehensive approach to longevity. But we can't even talk about longevity until we escape carbohydrate dependency and become fat and keto-adapted, become metabolically flexible. If you remain in carbohydrate dependency, which is essentially what we've been doing for decades in the standard American diet, getting our primary fuel source every day from dietary carbohydrates, regular feedings of dietary carbohydrates, this sets the stage for a lifetime of disease patterns, lifelong accumulation of excess body fat. We have the metabolic syndrome markers that more and more people are landing into as they get up into the older age groups. You know, we can do anything when we're kids, teenagers, we hang in there in our 20s, maybe 30s, and then the spare tires start to appear, the health problems start to occur. One day you go to the doctor, you get a bad blood report, you get a disastrous diagnosis, and this is everyday occurrence to the extent that we kind of seem to be treating it as normal that you're going to have a long, steady uh, pain and suffering decline into old age. You're going to eat what they tell you to on TV or what the U.S. government promotes with the food pyramid. And thankfully, the ancestral health movement has woken up and taken off in the past decade. But there's still a lot of people and a lot of giant resources, perhaps even your own friendly neighborhood doctor, that are still stuck in the past and the flawed conventional wisdom that a grain-based high-carbohydrate diet is the way to go and this keto stuff is uh, dangerous and this carnivore stuff is crazy and it's time to wake up and at least realize, come to agreement on the idea that the standard American diet has been a disastrous epic failure of record proportions. We're looking at the uh, fattest and least fit population in the history of humanity here in uh, the United States and the uh, culture that we export to other countries. So opening your mind to new ideas, what a wonderful experience, and then going and trying something out, seeing how you feel, and also perhaps doing some blood work if you're in the high-risk category, and trying a restrictive diet like the uh, uh, 21-day metabolism reset that we walk you through and uh, show you how to do on the Keto Reset Mastery course. Try it out. Oh, don't forget the discount, Brad20, brad two O. A huge 20% discount on your course enrollment. But back to the matters at hand, and I mentioned the book Keto Longevity. And the fun thing about this was taking that baseline uh, fabulous attribute of metabolic flexibility 
the life-saving attribute when you can ditch carb dependency, get away from those disease patterns, and be a fat-burning beast, as Mark Sisson says, then we have to introduce the comprehensive, complementary lifestyle elements. So we have these four pillars of keto longevity. The first one is metabolic flexibility. The second one is movement and physical fitness. So your game in this area will really make or break your dietary transformation efforts. In particular, if you're engaged in any form of chronic exercise pattern, you will get pushed back, violently spit back in the direction of carbohydrate dependency because a pattern of depleting workouts that are slightly too difficult, last slightly too long, and are done too frequently with insufficient rest will deplete you. It'll give a fight-or-flight stimulation to your brain, and you will crave quick energy carbohydrate to return to normal baseline because of these exhausting workouts. And then getting up the same the next day and doing it again, getting up the next day and doing it again, turns into muy mal noticias, bad news. So getting away from the chronic patterns, and then on the other side of the coin, it's urgent to establish a baseline level of physical activity every day. And yes, I'm talking to you fitness freaks out there who go in and do your 6 a.m. CrossFit workout four days a week, or you're running 30, 40 miles a week getting ready for the marathon or the ultras, or you're putting in miles on the road in your triathlon endeavors. All that's great. But if you look at the big picture and realize that there are 168 hours in a week and you're training for let's say four, five, seven, ten hours a week, that's great. But if you're engaged in sedentary patterns and prolonged periods of stillness during the other times of the week and your routine busy day, that is going to compromise fat burning and push you back in the direction of carbohydrate dependency. When you sit for as short as 20 minutes, you will get a measurable increase in insulin resistance, get less oxygen and blood circulation in the brain. So you'll kind of get cranky, tired after a while, maybe not 20 minutes, but a couple few hours. You'll start to have diminished cognitive function and diminished fat burning. So you'll be low energy and have cravings for quick energy in the form of carbohydrates. So you have to get up and move and keep moving throughout the day. And now some of the great leaders in the fitness scene are realizing Uh, this important transition away from uh, an obsession with high-intensity or grueling workouts of any kind, high-intensity or long duration. We're moving away from the obsession with workout energy expenditure and placing more importance on general everyday movement. Katie Bowman, leader in this world, best-selling author, doing her thing, she calls it movement nutrition. So that's the nutrition of daily movement, all forms of daily movement walking starting point, uh, doing flexibility mobility drills. Go look on YouTube. There's a video called Brad Kern's Morning Routine, and I go through my custom-designed flexibility mobility morning routine there showing you all the cool stuff. And I do that every single morning. As soon as I wake up, I hit the floor, and I do my scissors and my circles and my frog kicks, and I get a great core workout, and I get the blood and oxygen flowing, and that's my Uh, fitness foundation baseline raising up higher because I do this mini workout every single morning. So getting those habits in place where you're leading a healthy, active lifestyle, 
big, big deal. So that's the movement part. And then physical fitness, the other component is doing those workouts we talk about so frequently, the primal blend of comfortably paced cardio, uh, putting your body under resistance load uh, frequently with the lift heavy things objective, and then finally sprinting once in a while and getting that all out maximum energy explosive burst and having that carry over into uh, fitness and all uh, lower intensity activities, as well as improved cognitive function. You may have heard of this wonder uh, protein agent called brain-derived neurotropic factor, BDNF. You can go search for that and uh, see all the articles, but this agent is lauded as a brain booster. So it makes your brain stronger, more resilient against decline, uh, firing the neurons faster, improving both short and long-term memory. And this BDNF is boosted or stimulated by all forms of exercise, including movement, including high-intensity strength training, and sprinting and leaving a healthy lifestyle, getting enough sleep especially. So that was the second pillar. The third one is mental flexibility, where we're talking about mindset, living in gratitude, avoiding the epidemic disease state of FOMO. You know what FOMO is? Fear of missing out. And our good friend, Dr. Ron Sinha, we published his book called The South Asian Health Solution. He works with large employee groups in the Silicon Valley, and he has identified FOMO as an actual disease with metabolic markers for people that are stressing too much in the head, messes up your blood sugar, triglycerides, inflammatory markers. So chill out. No more FOMO allowed. Folk you. Hey, folk you too. You know what folk you stands for? F-O-K-U. Fear of keeping up, fear of missing out. It's all triggered today with the uh, glorification of social media, the consumerism forces in the economy, the marketing messages, and enough is enough. So that's a huge component of longevity. And then the final pillar is rest and recovery. Duh. And here's looking at you, uh, uh, diet enthusiasts, fitness freaks again. Uh, a lot of us who are doing the very best we can and really serious about our health commitment, uh, devoted, disciplined, diligent, goal-oriented, driven, <laughs> type A personality attributes that get us out the door early in the morning to go throw down and do a sprint workout or do something impressive, sometimes those attributes can come back to bite you if you fail to emphasize rest and recovery. So we got to put it all together. Metabolic flexibility, number two movement and physical fitness. Number three, mental flexibility. And number four, rest and recovery. How about that for a sneak preview of the book? And with that, shall we jump in to some interesting questions, very uh, thoughtful and varied. So uh, here's some questions about, oh, switching from a 16 and 8 fasting eating schedule to an 18 and 6. So an 18-hour fast and a 6-hour eating window. Very impressive. That's probably uh, 12 noon to 6 p.m. or 1 p.m. to 7 p.m. This is Jean-Michel, who is in Watson Lake of the Yukon Territory. That is so awesome to hear from people all over the planet, from Scandinavia to the Yukon Territory to the big cities of America and down under the Aussies. We get these uh, statistics for podcast listenership and the percentage 
of Australia, New Zealand listeners is way above uh, the population percentage. So you could maybe say that Australia, New Zealand is the most uh, primal living uh, area on the globe. So good day. Thanks for listening down there down under, even for hosts that have uh, bloody terrible accents, mate. I'm doing my best here. Okay, so Jean-Michel says he's switching over to that more aggressive fasting schedule. When should I time my workout? He's mostly running and doing weights twice a week. Huh, interesting. Should I just do my workout and drink the pink salt water after the workout and then uh, wait until my first shake? Or should I time the end of my workout to coincide with the beginning of my eating window so I can take a shake down immediately after the workout? I'm training for a marathon. I love keto and fasting. Uh, I've been doing it for six months now. So, hmm. You know what's a good answer here is that uh, do, do whatever you want. It doesn't really matter because when you get metabolically flexible. You don't have that requirement for urgent, aggressive reloading of energy after your workout is completed. And this is the template that we've been educated and told to do for decades where the athlete is told that you got to get home and immediately slam a high-performance smoothie containing protein, containing carbs, restock that muscle glycogen immediately. Otherwise, you will have uh, a diminished ability to restock muscle glycogen if you wait longer. This is the message that was printed on the, uh, on the label of the nutrition products that I sold in my past life. I'm ashamed now to say I was selling all these sugary energy bars and uh, powders for uh, the endurance athletes who were out there pumping out uh, so much energy, burning so many calories, and needing to replenish quickly, uh, including with liquid that uh, helps get more calories down. But hey, I guess if you're out there doing that crazy kind of training, uh, you need something. So I guess I shouldn't feel too bad. But now this incredible awakening has occurred in recent years, which is the fat-adapted athlete, endurance athlete, fat-adapted strength athlete. It can be for anything, including the most explosive of training regimens. Uh, Luis Villasenor at ketogains.com. Check out his thing over there. It's a fabulous community, huge. And he is a leader in helping people uh, lose weight, uh, do keto the right way, be smart and sensible about it, and very focused and uh, uh, ensuring of results because of your uh, focused, methodical approach. Luis has been in strict keto for... Uh, believe 18 years and counting. So basically the new millennium, he's been in keto and doing uh, ambitious strength, power lifting, bodybuilding style workouts. And the guy's uh, hugely ripped with uh, a ton of muscle mass and power. And so keto definitely works for strength and power athletes. And of course it works for endurance athletes because uh, the whole essence of endurance sports is to get efficient at burning fat so you can go for a long time and not collapse uh, and lie down on the curb after burning through all your muscle glycogen. So uh, the question of like, do I need to take a shake right after the workout uh, has been conclusively proven by the amazing results in the FASTER study, F-A-S-T-E-R. Go Google that and read up on that. It was uh, overseen by uh, the keto pioneer, Dr. Jeff Folick and his team, and they brought in uh, highly trained endurance, ultra endurance runners a group of high-carb, normal-diet-eating ultra-runners, and then a uh, very uh, 
high-performing uh, keto, low-carb group where they had a great experience, at least six months of eating uh, an ancestral-aligned diet, uh, low-carb, low-insulin producing. And what they found is that putting these fat-adapted runners through the paces, they ran an exhausting three-hour run on the treadmill designed to deplete muscle glycogen. And then after the workout overnight, uh, instead of slamming carbs, they just went about their merry way and ate their usual high-fat, low-carbohydrate meals. Guess what happened? They restocked muscle glycogen. Magically so. It was an amazing revelation to realize that you don't need the carbs to restock muscle glycogen efficiently. How did they do it? Part of it was from uh, the ingestion of sufficient protein to engage gluconeogenesis. That's the conversion of amino acids into uh, glucose and then storing it in the uh, muscles in the liver since the glucose was depleted. So that's an elegant process that we do uh, as part of the uh, genetically programmed survival mechanism whenever we don't have enough glucose in the diet. We can engage gluconeogenesis. A lot of times you hear about that term in a negative context, uh, in the fight or flight context, when uh, you're you're jumping into keto or any sort of crash diet too soon when you're not fat adapted, and then your body's just going to make its own sugar, usually from lean muscle tissue, and fuel your glucose starving brain. So what you want to do is get fat adapted the right way, so that you only engage this gluconeogenesis in an elegant manner to restock muscle glycogen as needed. Uh, I had a great show with Dude Spellings, a couple great shows, and uh, check those out on the channel because uh, this guy has some pretty fantastic uh, cutting-edge insights. Oh, they might have been labeled as endurance shows because he's an endurance performer and coach, uh, but he was uh, speculating. Uh, who else told me this? Kyle Kingsbury. Check out his podcast, the guy associated with On It and Aubrey Marcus, former MMA fighter, college football player, and he proposed that um, perhaps gluconeogenesis, low-carbohydrate eating, is the most efficient and elegant way to restock glycogen because you only restock exactly what you need and never any extra. That's not how the body works. We don't make extra of substances <laughs> when, when we only need a certain amount. Uh, in contrast, when you're slamming uh, the Ben and Jerry's pints after your hard day of training, you're going to get uh, an excess of glucose into the bloodstream, and then you're going to engage those inflammatory processes and uh, sustain the oxidative stress of dealing with that uh, low-octane fuel source. So you're going to be uh, uh, doing exactly what you don't want to do to your body after a workout, which is to uh, stimulate oxidation and inflammation in the bloodstream, because the workout has done that itself. You're already in a free radical and inflamed state after a difficult workout. Your body's working through that, trying to recover, and then you go slamming uh, a high-carbohydrate meal or snack, uh, thinking that you earned it from your ambitious workout, but really that's... Um, really adding uh, insult to injury with the body and significantly extending your recovery time because tough workout plus bad food. I know, eye-opening stuff. And dude made a profound uh, comment on one of our interviews when he said that maybe, just maybe, after a really tough, grueling, long-distance workout, maybe the fastest and most efficient way to heal and recover is through fasting. What? <laughs> so you get home from your grueling three-hour run, uh, and you walk in the door, and we know what endurance athletes do when they walk in the door after a, a grueling workout, is they slam, slam whatever's around. 
But what happens when we're fasted? We engage autophagy. That's the natural cellular detoxification process that goes on uh, inside the body, which is exactly what we need to do after a grueling, difficult workout. We also are in a low inflammatory, heightened immune function state when we are fasted and in a heightened antioxidant producing state, including the master internal antioxidant uh, glutathione. So when you're engaging all these resources because you're fasted and because your body works most efficiently when in a fasted state, if you can hang if you can get that fat adapted to the extent that you can wait a few hours before you uh, sit down to a proper nutritious meal, that might be a winning formula. Absolutely shocking to propose the opposite of what we've been doing for decades. Uh, but I love that thinking experiment and something to try. Dude reports uh, good results from uh, pairing uh, difficult workouts with fasting. However, caveat here, don't try this at home if you are carbohydrate dependent because you will pass out and feel like crap and engage the fight or flight response to make your own sugar, most likely through lean muscle tissue conversion. So you're going to strip yourself down, you're going to feel terrible and have extended recovery time because you're not built yet to burn fat and make ketones efficiently. So it's an advanced strategy for people who are already fat adapted and really comfortable fasting. Forget about the workout, just comfortable fasting in life. Okay, so uh, Jean-Michel, good luck with your marathon. Uh, next question from Lily, uh, 78, taking lots of meds, including Coumadin, and uh, is it okay to continue taking my meds in a fasted state? I take the med three times a day. It seems to me that some food should be in the stomach. Yeah, I would ask your doctor about that, and it makes a lot of sense that you don't want to mess around with medications uh, when you're fasted. Certainly don't want to ask a podcast host for medical advice like that, but good job with your fasting. That's probably helping your condition, and good luck managing the medication. I know those are sometimes disparate tracks where you might not even get a lot of support from your medical professional when you're in doing weird stuff like keto and fasting. So hopefully we can get more and more forward-thinking uh, physicians out there that are supportive of this uh, alternative lifestyle practice, I guess you can still call it. And I'm finding that personally, where there's so much more awareness of the ketogenic diet uh, in mainstream society that this has permeated and filtered into the medical professions too. So instead of uh, dismissing it with a snicker out of hand, as a medical professional or a diet professional might have done, uh, two years ago or five years ago. Now it's uh, people are even trying it for themselves. And boy, when you can see a doctor, nurse, medical professional, that's a walking advertisement for uh, that kind of eating, that's going to have a wonderful impact on patient care because it's open and supportive instead of like, what are you doing? This person's crazy. Here, take this med and go home. One can only hope, right? Kim asks, can a vegetarian realistically do the keto diet and stay on it long term? Hmm, yes. Might be a little difficult and a little circuitous 
from someone who's emphasizing the nutrient-dense animal foods of the planet. So I would argue for being an all-inclusive vegetarian as much as possible, uh, going for some sardines and mackerel and eggs and wherever that cutoff point is. Um, seems like a lot of times it's random, so... The vegan is saying they don't want to eat anything sourced from an animal, uh, but that's sort of an arbitrary uh, statement anyway, because even the wheat crop that's grown for your uh, slice of bread there, uh, you know, the mouse got stuck in the rototiller and uh, got right into um, molecular level into your loaf of bread. Same with the soil that your tomatoes and your kale and your sweet potatoes were grown in, uh, a a prominent component of healthy, fertile soil is the bacteria from cow shit. So we're all eating animals in one way, shape, or form. And if you can just move that uh, needle over a little bit to be more inclusive, then you're going to uh, allow the inclusion of some of the most nutrient-dense foods on the planet, like the oily cold-water fish and the wonderful pasture-raised egg. So if you're trying to do keto long-term as a vegetarian, uh, we're going to keep that carb intake pretty low to stimulate ketone production, and that means that it's going to be uh, a, a, a challenge to find uh, sufficient calories and food sources that are going to keep your carbs low enough and allow you to thrive. Uh, however, there's high-fat uh, members of the plant kingdom, avocado, coconut, olive, things like that. But then as you try to uh, be guzzling olive oil every three hours because you're trying to be a vegetarian keto, some of this stuff starts to not make good sense and even possibly push you in the direction of nutrient deficiency. So, Wow. Um, you know, maintaining an open mind and critical thinking and testing some new ideas. Uh, questions coming up shortly about the carnivore diet, which is so interesting, really fascinating to me right now, the information that's being dispensed about that. So there's new things abounding and you think, think critically, uh, be willing to try something new and not stuck into uh, a dogma of vegetarianism due to past programming, which is uh, the source of a lot of this stuff. Somebody cool introduced you to vegetarian, uh, a light bulb went off in your head when you saw the dirty, nasty pigs in the feedlot. And I think uh, what we can all have as a common goal is to uh, disengage from the uh, extremely objectionable uh, methods of raising uh, both animals and uh, crops these days where you're getting the uh, strawberries sprayed with a nasty chemical. I believe strawberries and uh, bell peppers are at the very top of the list for the most offensive pesticides, you know, true poisons. There's a lot of um, uh, criticism now about the uh, glyphosate that's uh, permeated the food supply, uh, the ingredient that's in Roundup, and it's so used so prevalently that it's... Uh, molecules have uh, gone into all manner of foods, even on an organic farm, because the wind blows from the conventional farm down the road. So yeah, do the best you can to source the very best sources of food, uh, starting with local offerings and the wonderful farmer's markets, and especially the increased ease 
and convenience of getting uh, sustainably raised animal products, pasture-raised beef and grass-fed beef, pasture-raised chickens, all that stuff is out there now. It's available, especially the pasture chickens from uh, Vital Farms, the Black Box. They were a small local farm starting in Austin, Texas, and now they've sort of made a a consortium uh, picking up a bunch of uh, producers across the country so that their uh, eggs have achieved widespread distribution, and they are true pasture-raised eggs. And as soon as you crack one and see the beautiful, rich color, rich orange color of the yolk, that's from the chicken's natural diet and the high beta-carotene levels in the uh, bugs and worms and grass and things that they're eating in comparison to that dull, light, yellow, waxy, opaque view with a traditional egg yolk. Oh my gosh. And then the taste, a single bite will put you into a whole nother realm of like, wow, this stuff is way better than conventional offering. Same with uh, ordering some uh, grass-fed 100% Wagyu cattle from Lone Mountain Wagyu grazing the farmlands of New Mexico. And this hamburger is so delicious that if you take a single bite, no seasoning, just cook it for a taste test, you take a single bite, you've never tasted a hamburger anywhere near this good. Same with the uh, buffalo meat from Wild Idea Buffalo. This is a grass-fed animal roaming the open plains of South Dakota and elsewhere as they have been for 130,000 years. Their harvesting methods are so different and more humane than the feedlot animals. And did you know this? I learned this from talking to the Wild Idea people that the, the the cow that is herded into uh, the slaughterhouse, it's such a violent uh, uh, sort of ordeal for the poor cow that they get their bloodstream flooded with stress hormones with all the squealing and the moving into the big packs and coming to their demise very quickly. So when an animal is slaughtered, when the bloodstream is filled with stress hormones, it makes the meat taste terrible. And any hunter will tell you, apparently, since I'm not a hunter, but hunters know that they either have to get a clean shot and take the animal down on one clean shot, because if they have to chase after an animal who's wounded and has gone into fight-or-flight response, when they finally kill it, they cannot eat that meat because it tastes so bad due to the stress hormones uh, circulating in the bloodstream. Oh, then why are we eating all this cattle from the feedlot at the fast food joint and it tastes fine? You know why? Read the book Fast Food Nation by Eric Schlosser. It was a transformative book. came out about 20 years ago, uncovering the incredibly disgusting and disturbing uh, methods in which we uh, raise feedlot animals and the chemical enhancements in our food supply. So basically, you're getting this stressed out, nutrient-deficient piece of meat from the feedlot, let's say a hamburger patty, and the... uh, chemical wonder people uh, centered on a single uh, parkway in New Jersey where the food enhancement flavor chemical uh, national headquarters are, they treat these nutrient deficient foods with chemical agents that make them smell and taste like delicious, fresh, fantastic meat. So you're getting a chemically chemical-laden burger patty that would taste horrible unless you uh, doctored it up. Very, very disturbing versus eating a naturally raised animal. Oh, they cost too much. You know what? 
let's sit down and look at your budget and all the crap that you're spending money on, whoever you are. It's your uh, your uh, digital internet services and your mobile device. Um, what else do people waste money on at all income levels? Uh, you know, clothes, what have you. Uh, uh, lack of discipline, paying bills and paying uh, interest charges and late fees. Hey, that's me. <laughs> uh, but you know, what a waste. And then we're going to say that this stuff is too expensive. All you have to do is prioritize and it becomes affordable for uh, hopefully almost everyone listening to the show. And if it's not, guess what? Walk into your local food co-op. There's one in Sacramento called the Sacramento Natural Foods Co-op. Incredible building, the greatest food selection. And you can sign up for co-op working hours and get a fabulous discount on your food. Wow. Brad has solved all your problems, both budget and health, in one fun, great show. Next is Oliver. Yeah, somebody else start talking. Oliver says, I just listened to your book, Keto Reset Diet. I know you had a great time doing that, because if you're an audiobook fan and you listen to one of the books that I narrate, like Primal Blueprint, Primal Blueprint 21 Day Total Body Transformation, Primal Endurance, Keto Reset Diet, I have a lot of fun on the microphone, and there's a lot of value added where I go off the script of the book to explain things or emphasize things more. If you're getting an audiobook, why not? So anyway, Oliver says uh, he's been trying the keto thing uh, for the last couple months, getting his carbs under 100, uh, and at 35, good shape, 6 foot 180, 20% body fat, lifting weights three, four days a week, running, biking the other days a week. My question is, I've already started to reduce my carb load. Do I still need to do a 21-day metabolism reset, or can I start straight into the keto plan that you've recommended? Uh, so yeah, you want to skip forward if you have good metabolic flexibility. I guess that's what the fine-tuning period and the midterm exam is all about. But if you can fast comfortably from 8 p.m. until 12 noon the next day, notice I said comfortably, not struggling and suffering and listening to your growling stomach and feeling uh, a little lightheaded and looking at the clock obsessively starting at 1045, that's uh, a huge difference. Yeah, I mean, you can do anything on a dare, right? But if you can fast comfortably and maintain maintain peak cognitive and physical function, perhaps even throwing a workout in there into the morning scene, and then get to lunch feeling just great, that is an indication that you're probably ready for a foray into nutritional ketosis and lowering those carbs further. But we have to be ready out of the gate. Otherwise, remember, it's just going to be a cortisol bath, the fight-or-flight response kicking in day after day after day because you're not giving yourself the carbs you need. Uh, so Betsy has a, a spinal condition where she's fused and not able to exercise much. She does work in the therapy pool, but she's wondering about the Keto Reset program because she's going to have difficulty nailing that exercise objective of doing a ton of workouts. Uh, you know what? That's a good point. Could you do it? if you are a little bit limited with your exercise opportunities. And of course you can. And the ketogenic diet has been used with great success on obese populations as a first line of defense, an emergency uh, process to get them back into metabolic health, irregardless of exercise. So if you're not exercising much and you try to cut carbs and go keto, you might have an easier time of it than someone who is exercising too much, as I spoke about before, pushing themselves back in the direction of carbohydrate dependency. All right, so Lewis threw down a ton of questions. 
speaking of that, we love you writing in, but if you can be concise and throw out questions that are uh, of applicable to the broad audience, that makes for a really great show and minimal editing. I'm not saying anything about Lewis here, uh, and I don't mind people that have a ton of questions, uh, but just uh, spend some time uh, you know, conveying the message as clearly as possible. So Lewis has lost 30 pounds in five weeks. 30 pounds in five weeks. Wow. Uh, He's a little worried that he's not eating enough calories on the ketogenic diet because he's never hungry. His ketones are uh, 1.3 to 2.5. And um, it's gotten even lower than that at times. He's got type 2 diabetes. So his glucose are uh, under 130. He's trying to keep it under 130. Working out, doing heavy weight training, and... Uh, when I have enough energy, doing high-intensity cardio-like sprints. So he's hit a plateau. He's trying to drop 150 pounds from 335 down to 185. Uh, was eating 2,200 calories a day. Um, the body, uh, body, basal metabolic rate is around 2,300, so he's burning uh, around the same as he eat- he's eating apparently. Who knows if that stuff's accurate? Um, but he's confused about how much to eat. And also being a type 2 diabetic, uh, needing some general advice. So I'd say someone who's um, dropped 30 pounds in five weeks is a wonderful success story. Keep going. Keep doing what you're doing. Uh, But he's a little frustrated saying that he's at a plateau and his weight has leveled off for a few weeks. That's going to happen, especially during aggressive weight loss efforts. So I think we should expect these, we should be patient, we should settle down, and even know that a plateau period is probably a nice break so that your body can kind of regulate to a new set point before you aggressively go down that road of calorie restriction again. And that's what's so great about being fat and keto adapted is it's pretty difficult to uh, put on a bunch of excess body fat if your carb intake is under control. So level off. Be patient, don't worry. And then when you're feeling really strong, uh, go in there and you know, watch the natural satiety levels with the ketogenic diet so you can eat as much fat as you need to feel satisfied, but certainly uh, don't need to ingest any additional fat just in the name of keto. And I'm kind of ad-libbing on that because we see this happening so frequently in the ketogenic space is somehow people have been uh, brainwashed, confused into believing that <laughs> uh, the ketogenic diet is about stuffing your face with fat in order to make ketones. And so it might be fun to go looking for fat snacks and uh, eating a little bit of extra fat food at every meal, but eventually and ultimately uh, your best efforts and the centerpiece of your ketogenic diet effort should be on the wonderful health practice of fasting, right? So keto, uh, the one-liner that I love, I think it was a highlight quote in Keto Reset Diet, keto allows you, avails you to the uh, long scientifically validated benefits of fasting without having to starve yourself. So fasting's great, but you know, once you get 24, 48, 72 hours, whatever, how level of badass you are, 16 hours, um, it's going to be time to eat because we're going to be wanting to burn that energy and get some nutrition, right? So more fasting, uh, more time periods where you're not eating, 
and then eating these delicious nutrient-dense meals that are aligned with the ketogenic macros so that you can uh, make ketones and avail additional benefits from burning this clean fuel. But it's not about eating more and more fat. So hopefully that's enough uh, support for Lewis, but congratulations, that's great news. Okay, Jesse has been eating Whole30-ish for two and a half years now, has lost 30 pounds. Now I'm trying to go on the Keto Reset program to maximize fat burning and also improve as a runner. Now, here's my question. I'm a nurse. I work night shift 7 to 7. Do you have any advice or tips for those working night shifts? Uh, on that first night working, I'm up for 24 hours and then I sleep during the day. Uh, during my days off work, I keep a regular day shift schedule. Oof. How do you do that, Jesse? That's brutal. I think the the nursing profession is the most self-selecting for people that can handle sleep deprivation and incredibly hard and arduous job. I have so much tremendous respect for the nurses. It's difficult, man. And you're putting your own health at risk when you're on that crazy sleep schedule of apparently uh, part of the time up at night and then part of the time sleeping at night. So, Boy, if there if there was a way to uh, negotiate uh, on either side to align with at least one consistent schedule, that would probably be healthier. I know you're going to say that you're missing out on life if you just sleep every day, even the days you don't work. Uh, on the other hand, is there any way you could get out of the night shift because you have this unique circumstance? Because I'm going to venture to guess that most night shift workers are getting a crap ton of sleep done during the day. They're not up for 24 hours and then going down and so on and so forth. So if there's any flexibility in your schedule to avoid the double dipping of working at night and sleeping at night, that would be uh, my first suggestion. And then the second one is when it's time to sleep, you're going to have to go to tremendous lengths to avail yourself a completely pitch black environment. Uh, the great book that I quote a lot, Lights Out, Sleep, Sugar, and Survival by Wiley and Formsby have some memorable quotes in there about just how light sensitive we are and how much it throws off our sleep cycles. So we have this process called dim light melatonin onset that is the onset of the, um, the, the sleep hormone, the prominent sleep hormone melatonin. It's also a repair hormone that affects uh, uh, dozens and dozens of genetic functions, super important in the body. We want melatonin to kick in and flood the bloodstream in the evening time. And that will eventually put us into position to have a good night's sleep. So the melatonin flood is cued by darkness. That's why artificial light and digital stimulation and handheld devices are so bad after dark because it disconnects us from our circadian rhythms that are influenced by the rising and setting of the sun for millions of years. Now our circadian rhythm is whenever we feel like making it dark. And generally a lot of us are doing that at 11 p.m. year round. So we're stuck like in summer uh, carb-craving fat-storing mode, hormonally, genetically speaking, year-round. Not good. So we want to have these uh, mellow evenings, minimal artificial light and digital stimulation leading into bedtime. So if your bedtime happens to be uh, getting off the night shift at 7 a.m., going home, uh, doing what you got to do, and then trying to get some sleep from uh, 9 a.m. to 3 p.m. or whatever you got in you. And I know a lot of shift workers uh, report that 
they need some time to wind down. So this idea that you're getting off work at 7 a.m. and you're going to be asleep, Betty by at 7.45 a.m. Uh, is unrealistic. Same for people that work like the 3 to 11 shift and you think, oh, you, you get off at 11? So why don't you go to sleep at 11.30 and wake up at 6.30 like everybody else? Well, because uh, it takes some time to unwind. Fair enough. Uh, but in Jesse's case, yeah, whatever you can do to have that pitch dark environment on the times when you're sleeping during the day, you want to simulate nighttime and simulate those sleep hormones flooding through the body and cycling optimally through all the different stages of sleep. And sleep sugar lights out sleep sugar and survival talks about these experiments where a single beam of light flashed upon the back of your knee is sufficient to suppress melatonin production. Yes, we have light receptors on skin cells throughout our body. It's great to wear a blindfold, especially if you're trying to sleep during the day or when it's not pitch dark. But as you probably can reference yourself, you know when you wake up right around sunrise, even when it's almost entirely dark in your hotel room or wherever you're sleeping, it's because that perception of light is so sensitive in the body. So uh, for the hard-working nurse on the night shift, get home and make yourself a little dark cave. In fact, this wonderful recording studio that's delivering perfect quality sound is a tiny, tiny, perfectly sized hall closet, which can double as a napping room with no windows, pitch black, great place to nap during the day. And to finish this show, thank you so much, everyone. Write in to info at ketoreset.com. Definitely visit the website, look at the promo video so you'll learn what it's all about in the Keto Reset Mastery course. You'll love it. Go keto the right way. Have a great day. So Chris Kelly, Nourish Balance Thrive, we're, we're talking about health and you're telling me a funny story about your picky four-year-old daughter that won't eat unless there's Primal Kitchen uh, condiments on the table. It's true. My daughter will not eat unless there's f***ing the Primal Kitchen Wilder. <laughs> it's, it's this cute thing, actually, she does. We have a local state park called Wilder Ranch. Oh, yeah. And uh, she calls the ranch dressing Wilder Ranch dressing. Which <laughs> we, 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 there's no way we're going to correct her on that. It's just too perfect. So, so endearing. Uh, how old um, is she? She's four. Oh my gosh. So she likes like the mayo on a Oh yeah, she, so she loves those. So we love them as well. We have, uh, we, we eat them all the time. We eat the mayo, we eat the balsamic, we eat the, the ranch, um, the avocado oil we use all the time. And, and so, you know, that's completely genuine. And I don't mind talking about that because you took the pain in the ass out of condiments. I really appreciate that. What an authentic spot from Chris Kelly at Nourish Balance Thrive. And yes, Primal Kitchen, you can call it Wilder Ranch Dressing if you want. And uh, we'll send five cents of the proceeds over to that beautiful state park because they're, they're trying to make ends meet in Santa Cruz Mountains. Thank you very much, Chris. <laughs> it's my pleasure.